Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Blake Haxton, the Energy and Transportation Analyst at Diamond Hill. Blake has been a guest on the podcast a couple of other times, and I'm glad he's able to join us once more. Blake graduated from The Ohio State University with a degree in finance, but wasn't satisfied with that and went on to get his JD from The Ohio State University. And to top it off, he was awarded his Chartered Financial Analyst designation in 2019. And oh yeah, he competes globally and in the Paralympics as a single rower. We're here today to discuss the energy and transportation sectors, but I highly recommend searching YouTube for Blake's TEDx talks recorded at The Ohio State University. It's inspiring and incredibly moving. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. And as always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Blake Haxton. Blake, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, You cover two sectors that have been greatly impacted by the global pandemic, energy and transportation. Let's start our conversation with energy, where the problem started in the market, almost kind of in sync with the eruption of the pandemic. uh, When OPEC and Russia started a price war in oil in early to mid-March, And now we're almost five months removed from the chaos of March and April, when we saw the futures contract trade at a significant negative level. While pricing has bounced off the lows of March and April, uh, oil is still under pressure from the ongoing lack of demand. What's the outlook for the energy sector going forward? Yeah, Doug, you know, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the volatility we've seen and the demand and supply uh, volatility hitting almost concurrently there in March where we had the OPEC deal fall apart. And then of course the impact of COVID send demand, uh, demand through the floor. The outlook has of course since stabilized, as you pointed out, prices have recovered. A lot of that is because is because of the supply side and how quickly they reacted. Uh, OPEC of course did capitulate and sort of get back, uh, get back together. There's some debate around whether that was because they did not have the physical place to put the oil they were planning on pumping or whether they were actually uh, getting back together and forming an agreement as a group. That remains to be seen. So I'm not, I'm not sure that this, this agreement we've seen uh, recently between OPEC parties is going to, be, is going to continue. However, uh, one way or the other, the supply and demand balance has come back a little bit as we've seen prices recover. And in the United States, we've seen a lot of shut-in capacity when demand was really at the, at the, uh, at the lows in uh, April, May, and June. And a lot of that capacity has now come back, which is contributing to what we've seen in the prices in the last few months, you know, July and August, of sort of a ceiling in the low 40s for WTI. A lot of that, as I say, again, is capacity that was shut in, that's coming back. And shale wells, you know, like we drill mostly in the United States, uh, you can shut them in and they actually come back pretty well. You don't lose a lot of the ultimate production. Not every well works that way, but here in the United States, we have the luxury of that. However, uh, looking forward now, there is still very little capacity happening in the oil field, whether it's in the Middle East or, or in the offshore or in the U.S. land. Rig counts are at lows we haven't seen in years, uh, and there's not a lot of signs of, of recovery there yet. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of crews go back to work. Frack spreads, which is the indication of how many uh, what they call frack fleets, which is just to call it uh, you know, a, a series of diesel engines that you put on semis that go out and actually uh, pressure pump the well. That Those have not gotten back to work yet. So 
Wells are declining right now. We're using resource. Inventories have started to come down a little bit. Uh, of course, we reached peak inventory levels during the peak of the crisis. So uh, we're still going to have to work through that a little bit to see a further recovery. But that's sort of where we're at right now. Now, to your point, going forward, demand is really going to be anybody's guess, in my view, so far. There are some bright spots. For example, gasoline demand is coming back is back close to where it was. Some of that's just because people are getting back to regular life and getting back to work. They're also choosing for their own personal transportation over uh, mass transit. So that's creating a bit of a demand shift there. And we're also seeing uh, incredible uh, temperature swings. So the demand for natural gas right now is, is very high uh, on top of a lack of development activity. So that's where we've seen a little bit more price action there. Uh, we'll get to this later, but the, uh, the diesel and the middle distillates, especially jet fuel, is really where we have not seen the demand come back. Those levels are still down, uh, down pretty substantially. So um, no, no recovery there yet, but it looks like some of the products that have yet to recover are probably some of those, those products where the end use is more contingent on a vaccine, uh, in my view. And, and that's kind of what we're looking for now. So let me follow up on something that you mentioned uh, that we had talked about in the past that it sounds like isn't as much of a big deal, but uh, one of the bigger issues that we had seen was uh, to what you had said earlier, there was nowhere to put the oil. Um, have we seen kind of a, a, a balancing of that, you know, being able to produce it and put it somewhere, whereas before we were running out of places to put the oil, has that uh, situation mitigated or are we still seeing issues with that? We have seen that issue mitigate large, uh, by and large. The inventory problem isn't nearly what it was. Of course, as you indicated, when we hit, I think a low was negative $37 a barrel uh, in the front month WTI contract. Um, it wasn't necessarily that we ran out of storage that week, is my understanding. It's that all the storage available at Cushing, which is where that contract settles, was leased up. So there was no free storage that uh, a buyer could step in at the last minute and take that contract uh, to expiration with. So... I think that's by and large alleviated itself, uh, particularly here in the United States, given the pace at which these wells decline, you know, certain shale wells might, uh, might shrink their daily production 30% from uh, over the course of a year. So as we're producing oil and not drilling new wells, that supply is not going to fill up those pipes and those storage tanks as quickly. Uh, and we're seeing that in the United States. We're seeing supply slowly uh, come down at roughly the pace we would expect given no no further drilling and I think that trend will continue uh, of course unless we start fracking more wells that's not going to reverse so uh, right around the same time actually this spring uh, focusing on the Permian briefly which is of course our largest basin there were actually a series of midstream projects so you know, midstream just meaning pipelines really from the oil field to the refinery or to an export hub where you could uh, offload to a final customer, uh, a lot of those projects actually came online just in the spring of this year. So now we're sort of in a place where differentials between the oil fields and the processing hubs have actually collapsed quite a bit. There's not nearly these blowouts as they call them where you end up with a supply and demand imbalance on either end of the pipe and, and the pricing differential uh, expands. And I think we're mostly through that. I don't, I don't know that that's going to be another a problem for, for quite some time, possibly, just given the supply and demand balance we, we're seeing at the moment. Blake, there are different components of the energy sector. So I was hoping you could break down which areas you think are well positioned to weather the stress in the market uh, and which are more susceptible to some of these ongoing disruptions. 
Sure. We, we like the upstream exploration and production businesses that have good assets that are well understood, that are still producing oil, and also have low leverage so they can weather these types of storms. Uh, of course, this storm in particular has been unprecedented, but there's some value there, we think. Uh, of course, if to be really excited about those businesses, you really have to assume a much higher oil price than we see today. Um, we don't necessarily see that because of how much supply there still is around the world. Now, that's not to say we couldn't see volatility to the upside in the short run, because as I discussed, with so much supply dwindling and very little development, if we were to see, uh, you know, let's say a, a real bull case would be we get a vaccine earlier than we thought, we distribute it very quickly, demand comes back before we can bring on more supply, and there you go, prices, prices would rise. I don't necessarily know that that's going to be the case, but that's the upside case. Uh, regardless, we think that some of these businesses have low enough leverage, solid enough assets, low cost uh, producers that they can generate cash flow in the current environment uh, and, and get through to the other side of this where we might see some more pricing strength. Uh, in terms of weakness, you know, one to varying degrees, all the oil field services have really come under pressure. Now, it doesn't matter if you're US land with a drilling rig or a frack spread, uh, maintenance providers, uh, or particularly offshore. You know, the offshore space, which is these generally contingent on large capital expenditures to make these projects work, lead times that sometimes last for a decade. You really have to get confidence if you're the, the sponsoring uh, producer that the oil price is gonna be there when you finish the project. There's not a lot of that confidence in the market right now. Very few businesses are looking to underwrite that kind of uh, duration on an oil and gas project right now. So over time, and by, by time I really do mean five, 10, 15 years, I do not know that the long, the offshore, deep offshore, even some shelf projects, which are a little closer into land, that we're gonna see that investment cycle come back just because again, it's so contingent on someone underwriting that long-term oil price. And we may see it again in the future, we may not, uh, but that's been the hardest, the hardest hit sector for sure is the offshore oil field services. Again, we're seeing a real trough there. Uh, still hard to see a lot of green shoots there. Uh, we're beginning to see uh, certain businesses saying they're gonna start dr bringing back drilling in the fourth quarter of this year, but not a lot of firm commitments yet. I think that's kind of the lay of the land of the various segments. Gotcha. So let's shift over to the other area, area of your coverage, which is transportation. Uh, and I'm going to throw some stats out, uh, and I want to get your thoughts on their impact to the airline industry. So according to the TSA, from March 2019 to mid-August 2019, uh, an average of 2.5 million travelers passed through security points at airports with a peak of 2.8 million on July 5th and a low of 2 million on, on May 2nd. Over the same time period in 2020, the average number of travelers was 547,000 with a peak of 2.3 million in early March before everything kind of started shutting down uh, and a low point of 87,000 on April 14th. With this seismic shift in travel that we've seen so far this year, um, is this going to continue? Is this the new normal? And how do you think it's going to function uh, in the future? You know, Doug, this situation, particularly in airlines and commercial airlines, reminds me of uh, the doctrine of the apocalypse, which is the doctrine of the already and the not yet. And I think the already part of that is what we saw in March and April. Um, of course, 
this, this incredible demand destruction, over 95% decrease in traffic. None of these businesses could survive in that environment. And then we saw things start to get a little bit better coming into June, maybe some green shoots, and then they've really plateaued since then. The not yet part of that is that as the fall starts ramping up and we see the end of the first stimulus package coming up at the end of September, then we sort of are looking out into the abyss around what some of these businesses are going to do. Uh, does demand come back? Do we need a vaccine in order for that demand to recover? No one really has a good answer to that yet, but to your question, I think we could put some parameters around where that demand is coming from and what the world might look like in the future. Uh, I, I know there's been a lot written about, you know, what ways that COVID is going to change human behavior in the long run. I am a believer that to some extent, business travel is going to be impacted over the long haul. Vacation travel, leisure, leisure travel, what the industry refers to as VFR, visiting friends and relations travel. I don't see that going away. I see that coming back pretty strongly only because you know, Doug, as much as I like talking to you over Zoom, sometimes I just want to hang out with you. You know, you got to be in the same room. And I don't think I don't think that's going away. Now, on the business side, you know, as you and I are here doing these, you know, we used to get to do, you know, last year we got to do these in person in the same room. And now, you know, you and I have kind of learned how to do this remotely. And I think about as effectively as we did before. And I don't think we're the only ones looking around various industries. We're getting a lot of that feedback from uh, all kinds of businesses. You know, we're both on the road a fair amount. Again, not to be too anecdotal about this, but mm -hmm. I have a hard time seeing my, my travel schedule getting back to where it was before uh, now that we've had this forced learning curve of how to be remote on everything. So having said that, we look at the industry players and where they're exposed. And there's been two big surprises for the last six months. And I say surprises relative to most of the forecasts out there in March from the, the street, from independent analysts, from the airlines themselves. Two, two things that I think have, have surprised commentators. The first is how long it's taken demand to recover. If you go back to March and look at most of the out, outlooks, I think a lot of people had demand maybe down 50% by the end of the summer. So where we are now, we're still down over 75. Really, it's taken a lot longer to get back to flying than, than the market originally thought. On the other hand, the positive from the business angle is that cash flow has actually been, has come under control much faster than people were predicting as well. CapEx has been cut, routes have been cut, you know, anything that's not nailed down has been sold, uh, lots of capital has been raised. So these, the businesses fundamentally are maybe in better shape than we thought they would be given the demand has still underperformed. Now, as we look forward, we are positioned and I am biased in those, in those themes. First of all, do we have a business that's resilient enough, has a good enough balance sheet, has a line of sight to free cash to being free cash flow positive in the near future, and can weather a longer downturn? You know, I, I won't pretend to have a better view than anyone else on when we may get a vaccine or when it may get distributed, but I want to have a margin of safety on when I think that may be, and then give myself a little bit of lag time to get there. Um, so one name or one business that we've owned for quite some time. Uh, Alaska Airlines sort of fits in that in that mold. A little more exposure to leisure than some of the other carriers, who I will leave unnamed to protect the guilty. But they're just they're just, they're just in a better position um, for the segments that I think are set to recover more quickly, and that ultimately won't be disintermediated by technology as we've seen through this downturn. Uh, Allegiant Airlines is also one we've owned for quite some time, and there uh, I was just looking at schedule data 
not that we're trying to call quarters or months or anything like that. I don't want to give anyone that impression, but, but you do, you can look up real time, what percentage of miles airlines are flying year over year. Uh, and most of the industry is still down about 50% in September. So between 45 and 60, let's say, uh, the most recent number I saw for Allegiant was they are down six. Wow. Single digit six. Now, because they're so focused on vacation and leisure, September is actually their lowest flying month of the year anyway. So I don't want to read too much into that. But I think that sort of gives you a picture into what demand we're seeing. Uh, something that came out just last week, or not last week, but it's been coming out with these trends is that people are, when they're flying for leisure vacation, they're actually more concerned about flying into quarantine than they are flying into high case count. So we've seen traffic in New York underperform traffic into Florida, for example, hmm. uh, which makes a lot of sense, particularly the travel is now skewing younger, it's skewing to a less risky population, and no one wants to go on vacation and spend the first two weeks in a hotel room. So to the extent people can travel, the people that are getting on planes aren't as worried about being in, in, a, hot, in a hot spot, so to speak, uh, which is kind of an interesting wrinkle here. But again, these businesses have a few things in common. They are they have great cash, they have line of sight to free cash flow generation. We think they have management teams that are very rational, that prioritize returns on invested capital, which is absolutely critical in a commodity industry like commercial aviation, and that are exposed to what we think are recoverable demand segments. The last piece of this, which neither of those businesses really have a, a, a role in, is international versus domestic. U.S. domestic travel has come back to the extent it has come back much more quickly than international. Who knows when international comes back, but that's going to be clearly a longer time, time horizon. Most corporations are still not flying. I think corporate demand, the last number I saw um, that the airlines produced was still down over 90%. And lots of reasons for that, which you know I'm sure people can understand. But uh, not, I am not optimistic that in the near term, corporate demand comes back in a strong way. Um, I just don't see it. I think it will come back eventually, of course, but um, not overly optimistic uh, anytime soon. So Blake, since we've been working from home, uh, I've asked guests that have come on how they're handling the pandemic and the work from home situation, but I'm going to shift my question slightly uh, to accommodate your specific scenario. Uh, you were set to compete in the Summer Paralympics Games in Tokyo this past summer. But the event was, as we all know, postponed. Uh, how has the communication been from the organizers? And has there been any change to your training regimen because of the pandemic and the unknown of when you may compete again on the world stage? Yeah, the, uh, it's been an interesting summer. You know, I think the, the communication we've got from the event holders is they kind of keep kicking the can down the road. You know, they'll put events on the schedule for five or six months out. And then it's sort of a wait and see around whether they can run them or not. Again, these are international events and you've got to, um, you know, you've got to get onto a different continent in order to qualify or compete. So we'll see. I, uh, I'm not holding my breath necessarily for next spring or next summer, but um, fingers crossed. Uh, you know, in terms of training, it's been great. Not going quite as fast as I would have otherwise, still doing the long and slow volume, but uh, really can't complain. You know, doing, doing pretty well over here. This 2020 has been awfully hard on a lot of people. And to the extent, the worst thing I've had to do is just delay a competition a year. Well, that's a, uh, it's, it's hard to act like that's all that bad. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Well, Blake Haxton, 
energy and transportation analyst at Diamond Hill. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. And uh, hopefully, as you said, we'll be able to do this in person next time. Hey, thanks, Doug. Always good to be with you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.